Uh, welcome, everybody, uh, to this, uh, the first of the uh, Cold War Studies Center's uh, lectures uh, for, this, for this year. Uh, firstly, I'll introduce myself. My name is Professor Michael Cox of the Department of International Relations and one of the directors of the Cold War Studies Center with my good friend from international history, Arnie Westad. Um, they always say that you know a person's a very important person when they have their own their own little page on Wikipedia. And uh, I'm not a Wikipedian myself, but I did actually consult it. And, and Barry Buzan has his own page on Wikipedia. Uh, and a very impressive Wikipedian he happens to be. Um, with 15 books, uh, many, many more articles and chapters. And I should also add to that a very good friend and colleague of mine, inside the International Relations Department. We more or less joined the department together about four years ago. So it's, it's, it's not only both professionally uh, excellent and nice for me to do this, it's also personally very nice uh, to do this as well. Um, Barry tonight will be speaking on the topic of the will the global Cold War on terrorism be the new Cold War. I don't think there could be a more appropriate title nor indeed a more appropriate speaker. So I'd like you to welcome Professor Buzan to speak on the topic for this evening. Barry, over to you. Thanks very much, Mick. I uh, appreciate those remarks. And I'd like to open by indeed thanking you and uh, Arna and the others of the Cold War Studies Center um, for opening up the intellectual space for this kind of thinking uh, about how the Cold War continues to resonate in world politics. It's quite possible that I might not have actually thought of this topic, or at least not of the way I'm going to approach this topic, without that stimulus having been there. Um, so you're doing a good job, guys, and, and yeah. keep it up. Okay, my question is, uh, will the global war on terrorism be the new Cold War? Um, and to cut right to the chase, my answer is, Probably not, and I'm going to explain why as I go along. Given that I'm going to answer the question in that way, why bother asking it? I think there are two reasons why one needs to ask this question. The first one is because the link is frequently made in the rhetoric about the war on terrorism. You don't have to look very far um, in the political rhetoric uh, coming out of Washington um, or indeed out of 10 Downing Street to read the analogy between uh, the war on terror and the Cold War. There are associated rhetorics which point in the same direction. Um, of late, some of the rhetoric coming out of Washington has used the phrase long war, and that seems to be what uh, is being settled on as the way to try to frame this. Islamofascism, a more recent uh, uh, Bush invention, points in the same kind of direction. In other words, it suggests that the war on terror is one of those big cosmic ideological struggles on which the fate of the world hangs uh, and which is going to go on for a long time, a kind of meta-struggle. Much of this rhetoric actually gets pretty close to the oldest security trope in the book, uh, which has resurfaced in some of these uh, statements, 
which is that about civilization versus barbarians. It doesn't get more basic than that uh, when you're in the security business. And the interesting thing here is that the two principal leaders concerned, Bush and bin Laden, both seem to either want or to expect this to happen. Quite what the mixture is between want and expect is something we could probably argue about uh, at considerable length. But certainly, both of them agree that they want this framed as a war. Now, that's not the only possible framing uh, for uh, the struggle that's going on here. It could have been framed um, in terms more of a, a monstrous problem of criminality, but it's been framed as a war, and both sides seem to want that. And I'm going to come back to this point um, a little later on because it's very important as to exactly how this thing is framed. And there are choices, it seems to me, about how you do that. So that's one reason to ask the question. Another reason is because of what the consequences might be uh, if I turn out to be wrong. And the answer to this is yes that the global war on terrorism will be the new Cold War. If the war on terrorism is to be the new Cold War, then, as the analogy suggests, it will structure in a major way uh, the patterns of international relations for several decades. That's what the Cold War did. It defined the whole superstructure, if you will, um, of world politics in terms of a competition between two superpowers uh, and two rival ideologies. The Cold War was sufficiently powerful that it even defined the Third World. I mean, the Third World was, in a sense, what was left over um, once you had subtracted uh, the major rival camps. So if the war on terrorism does become the new Cold War, then it's going to change the architecture of world politics in quite a substantial way, just as the bipolarity of the Cold War replaced a more uh, multipolar system that had been there before, where there were lots of great powers. Cold War was framed around two. The, uh, the war on terrorism, if it becomes the new Cold War, will legitimize a unipolar structure with the United States uh, at the center of it, and a United States that would be legitimized in playing a more unilateralist role in the system um, than it has done uh, during the Cold War and before. So the political significance, if you will, of the war on terror in this sense is that it is a potential legitimation for a more hierarchical form of international society. And from what we've seen so far about the direction in which this might go, this would be one in which interventionism was more legitimate, in which the preemptive use of force was more legitimate, um, and in which the United States uh, claimed up to a point a kind of legal regime applicable only to itself, separating itself out to some extent um, from the rest of international society and claiming specific rights and responsibilities because it is the sole global leader. You can see that kind of trend 
um, in much of the rhetoric from Washington already. Now, there is an interesting academic debate about all of this. Of course, there's always an interesting academic debate about these things. That's why you're here, presumably, most of you. And it's a, a debate about precisely this relationship between uh, the war on terror and the nature of international society. This is not my main topic, but it's just worth a small aside. Uh, Tim Dunn, for example, uh, argues that, in a sense, what the war on terror threatens is to weaken international society by moving the United States outside of it, uh, by moving towards more unilateral stances um, in its foreign policy. The United States, in a sense, distances itself from the rules of the game that the rest of the uh, international society plays by and therefore weakens that society. And that that's um, a very worrying thing because if the leading state in the system is, in a sense, moving away um, from the structure of political order in the system. And that does not bode well for international society. Morton Kelstrup, taking the same kind of problem, argues that uh, what the danger is here, and this is much closer to my theme, uh, is that the US is seeking to use the war on terror as a means of shifting international society to the more hierarchical form that I just described. Now, both of these will, of course, be ringing bells, certainly with Mick Cox um, sitting here, because there are obvious links in all of this uh, to the whole argument about uh, the widening of the Atlantic and about whether we should understand the United States as some kind of new empire. Mick has been a leading light in that, uh, in that debate. And that's, in a sense, a different way of saying the same sort of thing. If one is moving towards a more hierarchical form of international society, uh, then it would perhaps be sensible to think of the United States as a new species of, of empire. There are other players in this game. Um, Halia Press-Barnathan argues that the, the U.S. has not been able to make its unilateralism work and is slowly being forced back, as it were, into the fold of international society. Uh, and this argument will continue to unfold. I raise it here then simply to underline why this question is important. Uh, because if it does go this way, then we're looking at a restructuring of world politics um, in a very significant way, and one w in which um, I, for one, would not be particularly pleased to see. Okay, so that's why this topic. I want to talk a little bit before I get into the, uh, the meat of my argument of, about the theoretical approach involved here. Um, nobody ran for the door when I said that. That's probably a good sign. Um, I'll keep it short and fairly, and fairly simple. What I want to talk about here is the way in which we might understand threats and how threats work in international relations. We can go along perhaps just temporarily here with Alex Went and his famous statement that states are people too. Now, I don't believe that, but for the purpose of, of this uh, talk, I'm going to suspend my disbelief for a minute uh, and, and pursue the parallel in the sense that states like people can exist on a, on a spectrum from the paranoid to the complacent. For example, I know that there's somebody um, in this room 
who has a fairly severe fear of flying, but is entirely happy to sit on the back of a motorcycle. Now, if you think, look at the statistics about these two things, sitting on the back of a motorcycle is a much more dangerous thing to do than getting into an airplane. Nonetheless, the fear of flying is real, and the complacency about being on the back of the motorcycle is also real. If you want proper international relations examples for this sort of thing, think of uh, US foreign policy uh, often presented as being too complacent during the 1920s and 1930s, not seeing the, the, the threats that were in fact gathering over the horizon, um, and perhaps being a little more towards the paranoid end of the spectrum um, during the Cold War and, and since 9-11. So it's not at all uncommon, and this is the key point, uh, for there to be a substantial disjuncture between the real level of physical threats, whatever they may be, um, and the perception of those threats by the actor concerned, whether it be an individual or a state, and therefore what sort of behavior results from that. At an extreme, a rather large real threat could be there, but no action would result because the threat was not understood as a threat or not accepted as a threat. This means that the question is not so much what is the real threat from terrorists and terrorism, although that is an important question and I will uh, reflect on it a bit, but that's not the main substance of what I want to, to talk about. The main substance is how successfully can those political leaders who want to promote the war on terrorism, how successfully can they convince their audiences that it is real and therefore create the basis for political action? Unrecognized or unaccepted threats engender no action. So there's a case here then for separating the analysis of real material threats and, if you like, the social construction of threats. Here I'm on the ground of Ole Weber's securitization theory um, that, that uh, promotes the idea that the social construction of threat is equally or sometimes more important to what happens than the actual material reality of threat. So what I, what I want to get at in this talk is, in a sense, the social construction of the war on terrorism is a threat, as a threat. Is this process going to be successful in a way that would establish the war on terrorism um, as a well-accepted threat for a long period of time? Now, if you can buy this idea of securitization, and you'll forgive me if I use this ugly word, but uh, we haven't been able to come up with anything better and nobody else has uh, suggested one. Um, all replies on a postcard, if any of you have got uh, better ideas out there for, uh, for a word for this. The scale of the process of securitization, by this I mean the process by which something is socially constructed and accepted as being a threat. Um, the scale of this securitization matters. Typically, when one is using this sort of, of theoretical approach, one is thinking about uh, relatively bottom-up sort of, uh, of securitizations like, say, one state or another, India and Pakistan, and the way they wind each other up and construct each other um, as threats, and indeed are threats to each other uh, in a variety of ways. 
what I want to focus on here is a, is a special case of securitization, which has an even uglier name, which is macro-securitization. And this is where we get to the analogy with the Cold War. A macro-securitization is one that successfully structures security relations for a large group of states and or other types of political actors, and it orders and integrates a variety of lower-level securitizations. This is exactly what the Cold War did. It packaged up a whole bunch of other, uh, as it were, national securities and organized them into uh, a big, durable, overarching framework. The Cold War was an exceptionally successful macro-securitization, perhaps the most successful one we've ever seen. Whether this was a simple, absolute reflection of the real existing level of threat represented by uh, the United States and the Soviet Union to each other is still a matter for debate. Uh, Mary Caldor, uh, a familiar name around the LSE, uh, once wrote uh, a, a quite well-received book uh, called The Imaginary War, arguing that the Cold War didn't represent um, a real level of threat that would justify anything like the sort of responses that uh, were being made, but that it was a social construction uh, for the convenience of the two leaderships concerned. I don't buy that argument, uh, or at least I don't buy all of it, but it's certainly worth talking about, and it illustrates again my point that there is a disjuncture or room for a disjuncture between real threats um, and what are understood to be and socially accepted to be threats. So the big question, therefore, will the global war on terrorism be a successful macro-securitization like the Cold War that will underpin a transformation of international society into a more hierarchical form. Now, what I want to do from here then is start by looking a little bit at um, the success so far of the securitization of the war on terrorism and then examine some of the uh, plausible events that lie in the near future that will affect whether this securitization is likely to endure or whether it's likely to be um, uh, fairly short-lived. In other words, 20 or 30 years from now, are we still going to be talking about the war on terrorism and is it still going to be structuring international relations um, or will it just be something that was a, a passing aberration um, in the first decade of the 21st century? So far, it has to be said, the war on terrorism as a macro-securitization has had a pretty good run. It's been quite successful. It's had a good run in a number of particular ways. The invasion of Afghanistan was broadly accepted and the activities there are still fairly broadly accepted by a wide group of states. Iraq has obviously been um, controversial, but as George Bush uh, rightly in this instance points out, there are still quite a few states that go along with this um, and are prepared to support uh, the Anglo-American project in Iraq. NATO, of course, famously invoked Article 5 um, after 9-11, something which it had never done uh, before, thereby kind of coming on side as an alliance with, uh, with the United States. But perhaps most uh, significant in, in all of this and where the contrast with the Cold War is perhaps um, greatest 
uh, is that a number of the other great powers that certainly weren't um, all on the same side during the Cold War are more or less on side with the global war on terrorism. Um, Russia and China um, and India all have their own particular reasons for seeming to be on side with the United States uh, in relation to the war on terrorism, mainly because each of them has its own particular little local difficulties, which is useful to attach to the legitimizing global uh, umbrella of the U.S. project. So there is a reasonably substantial measure of support for this internationally, and one that significantly includes uh, uh, countries, major countries that have not uh, traditionally been aligned with the United States. Another success in uh, this securitization has been the way in which it has uh, incorporated a number of other longer standing securitizations, uh, particularly in the US, but to some extent elsewhere too, noticeably in the EU. Um, and that is that it's been successfully linked to uh, the so-called war on drugs and the war on crime um, and to the campaigns against the proliferation um, of weapons of mass destruction, particularly nuclear weapons. Both, both of these things, the sort of uh, criminal and drugs trade and uh, concerns about uh, nuclear non-proliferation are very long-standing security concerns uh, internationally. Uh, and also uh, domestically in the U.S. And if you look at the way in which the war on terrorism is discussed, the way, if you like, the rhetoric um, that securitizes it, you will find that the linkages to uh, concerns about uh, nuclear proliferation and concerns about crime and the war on drugs are very explicit and very often repeated. Um, so the typical formula goes, um, that now that states are no longer funding terrorism, with, of course, the, uh, a few notable exceptions, but now that, as it were, the communist bloc is no longer funding uh, uh, terrorists against the West, um, terrorism is being funded by crime, particularly the drugs trade, so it's the money that is raised by all of that um, that uh, potentially funds the acquisition of weapons of mass destruction. It's a nice little package which links together some things that are already legitimate uh, and uh, engages them in a mutually reinforcing relationship uh, with the war on terror rhetoric. It's perfectly clear also uh, that the war on terror has very successfully captured the media. Uh, I mean, just look at the television news um, or the newspapers uh, or the journals and they are soaked in discussion of the war on terrorism. That is the topic of the day. Um, the media, therefore, is playing its part in uh, embedding this securitization because they go on and on and on talking about it as if the threat was actually real. Uh, in other words, broadly speaking, um, the threat is accepted and one goes on to discuss the problem from there. There's a a disturbing linkage as well, which works in favor um, of uh, the embedding of the war on terrorism, and that is uh, the recent successes um, of what's usually referred to as the clash of civilizations thesis. This is Sam Huntington's um, uh, idea from the early 1990s, um, but it's one that still resonates. It resonates particularly strongly when the Pope uh, starts uh, quoting medieval uh, uh, 
princes uh, against Islam, and you get people then being killed all over the place and riots in, in various places and airline hijackings and what have you. It was visible in the, the furore over the Danish cartoons. Um, this is a, it's a, it's a dangerous partnership, but it's also a very potent one. Uh, it's been an interesting aspect of the, uh, the rhetoric of the war on terrorism that uh, even George Bush um, has been keen to try to separate uh, the concern about terrorists from any kind of general concern about Islam. In other words, uh, even the, the principal promoters of the war on terror are not particularly keen on escalating this up to a clash of civilizations uh, because that has um, some very uncomfortable and dangerous consequences. But the fact that the clash of civilizations thesis is bubbling away in the background does the securitization of the war on terror no harm at all. So, in many ways, so far, this has been a pretty successful securitization, one that might plausibly become the new war on terrorism. What I want to turn to now is a set of speculations, really, but um, I think fairly contained speculations about how this securitization is going to stand up to plausible, um, reasonably likely uh, turnings of events over the next uh, decade. So it's a fairly short-term uh, look, uh, and the basic argument is going to be that there are a number of things which are going to bear on the sustainability of this securitization. The first one, then, is, of course, the material threat itself, which is to say... Um, the, the nature of terrorist attacks and plans for attacks and how this unfolds in the years ahead. There are basically three possibilities. There's a sneaky fourth, which I'll come to in a minute, but there are basically three possibilities in relation to, as it were, the level of activity um, uh, of terrorists and therefore the threat posed by them. Things could stay much the same as they are now, roughly as things have been since 9-11. Um, a certain level of, uh, of terrorist attacks, uh, not as great as 9-11, um, but fairly consistent, um, spread um, all around the place. We'll leave Iraq out of this for the time being, because I'm going to get to that in a minute. Um, but more of the same is one possibility, that the terrorists are doing as much as they can um, and that they're not going to get any, any stronger or any more destructive. Second possibility is, of course, that, uh, that the terrorist threat could begin to fade a bit, either because countermeasures are successful um, or because the, the nature of al-Qaeda itself is not uh, particularly durable. There's an interesting piece in International Security by Audrey Kurth Cronin um, on this, on the argument that these kind of network organizations are inherently unstable. They may work well for a time, but uh, the probability is that at some point they, they break up um, and, and don't work so effectively anymore. So for either reason, it's possible that the, the level of terrorist activity could go down. Or, of course, um, everybody's nightmare, it could get worse. Um, if 
some of our cities, or if even one of our cities uh, is vaporized in a nuclear explosion, or even just with something uh, a bit less than that, then we're all going to be living uh, in a rather different world. So these are the three possibilities. It seems to me pretty clear that uh, if escalation occurs, if the terrorists are able to up their game, um, make a higher pace of attacks uh, and attacks of a more devastating sort, then this will support the maintenance um, of the war on terror as a dominating securitization. But it seems to me that if the other two options are where we're going, if it's more of the same um, or less, then probably this is not going to be enough given the costs um, of pursuing this war. This is probably going to have a corrosive effect on the sustainability of this securitization. At the moment, we could live with the level um, of attacks that we are under. It doesn't threaten to disrupt our societies uh, in any very fundamental way. This, of course, um, leads to the, the fourth uh, scenario, which is one I, I put out with some hesitancy because I'm basically not very partial to conspiracy theories. I'm, I'm more of a cock-up theory man myself in terms of preferred explanations as to how the world works. Um, but it has to be said that most of the information we get about what's going on in the war on terrorism is produced by intelligence services. And these are not the most open and honest parts of Western society. We have been lied to and deceived by our intelligence services before now and probably will be again. It raises, therefore, just the possibility in my mind, a possibility that's strong enough, I think, to encourage a sustained skepticism about the reports that one gets of how many terrorist plots have been uncovered and foiled um, as to how true this is. <coughs> Given that we know there are political interests um, that have uh, a concern to maintain this particular securitization. The possibility of it fading away um, or not being big enough to sustain the securitization, uh, it has to be taken um, into account in thinking about the sorts of reports we get from intelligence services. And if you wanted to get really, uh, really conspiracy theory minded about this, whether there would be, if the terrorists weren't doing enough, um, whether there would be um, provocative acts, as it were, by the intelligence services in order to sustain the securitization. As I say, I'm not inclined to that kind of conspiracy theory, um, but we've had enough lies and deception out of the intelligence services that I don't rule it out either. And I think one needs to maintain an attitude of healthy skepticism. So that's one of the, of the factors that will affect whether this securitization endures. The second one is the commitment of the United States to it. There is no question that the United States is the key leader in this securitization. Europe and others follow along, but if the United States was not leading this, then I don't think this securitization would be sustainable. Now, I do not here mean to question the, uh, either the depth or the durability of the trauma inflicted on the United States by 9-11. I think it is now well understood that American society was deeply shaken 
um, and deeply moved in a variety of ways which are uh, still unfolding by this event. So I don't question uh, that uh, or the way in which it's produced the behavior that we've seen so far. But I do wonder how long this will be sustainable within the American context. My main concerns here would be the, the fact that the, uh, the pursuit of the war on terrorism is necessarily a state-strengthening activity. And if there is any society in the world that is continuously hostile to its own state, uh, it's the United States. The Americans do not like big government. Um, they are, in general, uh, uh, against uh, extensions of the powers of central government. Like all democratic peoples, they will suspend their civil liberties if they are convinced that there is a crisis on which requires that the government temporarily be given more powers. But the rhetoric of the long war seems to point to something more than just a temporary suspension um, of uh, civil liberties and other rights. And so one has to see that also available in the American body politic um, is a, uh, an anti-statism, a civil libertarianism, uh, and, the, and the concerns that this generates, which is automatically going to be opposed to the increase of state powers uh, that the pursuit of the war on terror requires. One saw elements of this surfacing in the, in the wiretapping scandal in Washington um, where the federal government was snooping on people without actually going through the proper legal, uh, legal proceedings. And there was a hue and cry about this in Washington for, uh, for some time. So there is a kind of counter pressure which is deeply embedded and deeply meaningful in American society, which will begin, I think, to resist um, the overweening powers of the state. You can see this in some of the particular opposition to the Bush administration. There is also the fact that uh, perhaps the other great truism of American society is that the one thing it doesn't like is failures. And what it doesn't like especially is expensive failures um, because America is, is famous for liking its foreign policy on the cheap. And nothing wrong with that. And Iraq, of course, is a sustained and expensive failure. Um, perhaps the biggest one uh, we're going to be treated to in my lifetime in the field of international relations. This, therefore, suggests, as the recent um, consensual statements from uh, the Unified American Intelligence Services uh, points at that Iraq may be having a corrosive effect on American willingness to fight the war on terror. This is a complicated question, and I'm going to come back to it, but I raise it here simply uh, because it's part of the internal dynamics of American politics that might corrode the U.S. commitment to the war on terrorism. There seemed for a time to be a little bit of wavering in Washington um, last year when the, when the rhetoric shifted from um, the use of the term war on terrorism um, to more anodyne and less... Uh, less warlike phrases, uh, the struggle against global extremism was favored uh, for a while, and it looked as if this might already be the beginnings of a backpedaling um, from this securitization. Uh, but the war on terror rhetoric has reasserted itself since, so um, I think that was a wobble rather than, than, than a trend. One has also to think in this um, regard of the, 
the exit of the Bush administration in January 2009. Is this securitization a you know, particular project of the Bush administration and one that will be not so strongly or if at all picked up by um, subsequent incoming administrations or not? It's clear that the Bush administration has a particular commitment to it, but it seems to me um, not impossible that a successor administration would sustain at least some of this securitization, but the departure of the Bush administration is also likely to um, weaken American commitment to this securitization, particularly if the Bush administration is seen to be departing under a cloud of failure. So U.S. commitment to this in the long haul is nothing like as guaranteed as American commitment to the Cold War was. So that's the second factor. The third one is um, linked but slightly different. It's not to do with American domestic politics, but to do with the acceptability and legitimacy of the United States um, as a global leader, as a country that others will look to to uh, set the tone for uh, the macro securitizations that, that organize the world. I don't need to say much about this. Again, Mick has been a major um, player in this uh, with the arguments about the widening of the Atlantic and, and all of that um, and the reactions against uh, unilateralism and the endless opinion polls on a global scale that show that the United States is sinking ever lower in the world's esteem um, and that Bush is the most disliked American leader in living memory, etc., uh, etc. Et all of this is pretty familiar, uh, pr pretty familiar stuff. So also is the concern about what seems to be the preference of the American uh, government for using the military as their first, um, as it were, preferred option uh, in dealing with problems uh, of this kind. This then, it seems to me, is, is a general background factor in which we have the U.S. as the leader of this securitization, but it's a U.S. that is becoming ever less respected and ever less popular uh, and ever less legitimate as a leader in the world. In other words, distance is opening up even in the West, um, if we can still talk about uh, the West indeed, uh, given the width of the, uh, of the Atlantic at present. So there's a question here, um, and it, again it partly relates to the particular dislike of the Bush administration, um, but it's potentially deeper than that as well, that it is America that's leading this securitization. It's America that has to lead the securitization. But American leadership itself is a, a dwindling asset um, in, a, in a more general sense. This is, of course, partly to do with the war on terrorism and, in, and particularly the war uh, in Iraq. Um, but there are other reasons as well. It's not, it's not specific to that. So it's worth uh, thinking of that as a separate, uh, as a separate factor. Here, of course, this links quite strongly back to the first factor of what the terrorists do. Um, if the, th the real visible uh, threat from terrorism becomes greater, this will um, refurbish, as it were, the legitimacy of American leadership. Um, but if it goes the other way and the threat from terrorism doesn't get so big, stays the same or, or gets, uh, gets smaller, uh, then this will tend to, uh, to, to work uh, in a synergy in the opposite direction with the declining legitimacy of American leadership. 
Now, fourth option. Here, um, I want to talk about general opposition to this securitization itself, not specifically American opposition, but um, just how acceptable is the securitization of the war on terror um, in the rest of the world. Various points to, to be made here. Um, one of them is the same kind of point um, as the one I made about anti-statism and uh, civil liberties in relation to the U.S., and that is that the war on terror is being fought very explicitly in defense of liberal values. That's the mantra that goes with it. That's what it's about. The difficulty is that every um, strategy uh, so far either employed or talked about uh, to pursue this war on terror is a contradiction with the very liberal values uh, that it purports to defend. So broadly speaking, there are three kinds of strategies either in play um, or uh, mooted. One is what might be called homeland security uh, as a strategy. This is about insulating yourself, protecting yourself uh, against uh, possible forms of terrorist uh, attack. This has all kinds of implications for uh, the liberal agenda, not just um, the civil liberty agenda, because a state that is more intrusive um, and looking at everything more closely is uh, corroding the civil liberties that we've come to enjoy in the West. It also has quite significant implications for economic liberalism. In other words, economic liberalism depends on open borders and free trade and the unimpeded movement of goods and finance and all that sort of thing. And if you look closely at the homeland security agenda, what you see is the exact opposite of that. Um, measures to make uh, the movement of goods uh, more difficult in a sense because everything needs to be inspected, um, everything needs to be uh, approved. Any of you who've traveled uh, by air internationally, uh, especially if you've gone to the U.S. of late, will know exactly what I'm talking about because you are the good that is being moved um, and you will have noticed that the obstruction to your movement has become rather considerable compared to what it was uh, some years back. Now, I'm not saying that this is a, a silly strategy I'm, or anything like that. I'm merely saying that the pursuit of this strategy has a dis directly corrosive effect um, on a number of the values that it's supposed to be defending. Much the same can be said about the second strategy, not homeland security, but going out there and bashing um, uh, the enemy wherever they can be found. In other words, a, a coercive, repressive uh, strategy, war, if you will. Um, this also is not good for either um, the political and social or the economic sides of liberalism. And we see this uh, contradiction most visibly um, in terms of the, uh, the great upset, the perfectly legitimate upsets about the policy of renditions, um, the uh, extra-legal prison in Guantanamo Bay, um, and the way in which prisoners were treated in, in Abu Ghraib. All of these things suggest that the pursuit of a war, even if it's a war to defend liberalism, is not good for the values that uh, liberalism stands for. And the third possible strategy, uh, mooted but not, uh, not, not too much done about it, as one would expect, is, is one that rests on an assumption that the causes of terrorism are to do with the great inequalities um, in the world, the economic inequalities, and that therefore um, one has to make 
the world economy uh, a more balanced, more equal place by undertaking uh, what would in effect be redistributive measures by reducing inequality, reducing the discontents in the poor part of the world. Now, I'm not convinced by this analysis anyway, but I simply put it on the table because it's one that's, it's one that's there. If one were to pursue this analysis, this would be going in the diametrically opposite direction from the policy of economic liberalism. In other words, you'd be moving into um, not exactly a command economy, uh, but into a managed economy uh, and making major inroads uh, against uh, the whole project of liberalizing and opening up and leaving to the terms of the market um, the world economy. So this is a, this is a war whose uh, various strategies all cause immediate and quite severe contradictions with the values that are supposed to be being defended. And this, it seems to me, in the long run, is going to make uh, the maintenance of this securitization difficult. Another ground for opposition to the war on terrorism uh, securitization is that the nature of the threat posed by uh, Islam, if there is one, or posed by the terrorists, isn't anything like comparable to uh, the threat that was faced uh, by the West during the Cold War. Whatever um, the fantasies of some Islamists about a new caliphate covering vast uh, swaths of, uh, of the Middle East and other parts of the world, this uh, does the Bin Laden vision, if you will, doesn't represent an alternative for Western civilization. The Soviet Union did. It represented an alternative future, as it were, which was plausible or seemed plausible um, for a number of decades uh, and might have, as it were, been the future of uh, industrial civilization. What is represented by um, Al-Qaeda and the terrorists is not. It doesn't threaten the West in that way. It's not the same kind of fundamental alternative political system um, that was represented by the Soviet Union. And in that sense, the threat is not inherently a deep threat in the way that the threat from the Soviet Union was. And for that reason, I think this securitization will be more difficult to sustain um, as its costs rise. And the other point under this heading um, is one to do with uh, the, the kinds of things that get linked into a macro securitization. In other words, what I've said here is we're dealing with a very, this macro securitization idea, the notion that um, a big overarching idea bundles together a number of other, uh, a number of other things and puts them into an, an organized and hierarchical form. It's interesting as to whether uh, these things that get taken on board as part of the package of a macro securitization work to uh, reinforce it um, or work to undermine it. It could well be argued that the successful linkage of the war on terrorism to concerns about nuclear proliferation tends to produce a reinforcement because the, the concern about nuclear proliferation has an independent legitimacy. It makes the, the war on terror securitization uh, that much more legitimate by being associated with it. Two that would seem to go in the opposite direction um, are the linkage of Israel's own particular war on terror with 
the general war on terror. This linkage works very well in relation to um, American-Israel relations, where the linkage isn't much questioned, but it, it induces much more skepticism uh, in much of the rest of the world, where Israel's troubles are often seen as being more of its own making um, than of a general part uh, of the war on terror. And an association, a linkage between um, Israel's particular battles uh, and the general battle of the West against terrorism might well drive some people away from the legitimacy of the overarching uh, 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 war on terror securitization. Perhaps more fundamental and more entertaining in an intellectual sense um, uh, is the case of Iraq because there's a nice Cold War parallel here. I'm trying to perform to the Cold War spec. <laughs> um, and, and the obvious parallel here is with Vietnam, another extremely unpopular securitization, not believed uh, certainly by many of my generation, despite all of the rhetoric um, and despite the fact that a big war was fought there. Uh, you know, that war fairly quickly became not very legitimate. Uh, this country, for example, the, you know, the normal... Uh, close ally of the United States that goes along with everything the U.S. does didn't um, in relation to the Vietnam War. We didn't send uh, troops there. So Vietnam was controversial um, and it was opposed. Uh, it was the, the student cause celebre of, uh, of my generation. Uh, but when you look at the Cold War and you look at the effect of this linkage, here you had a very unpopular particular securitization that around Vietnam linked to what was a very successful, durable macro securitization. And the unpopularity of the Vietnam War uh, looked at in retrospect did not seem to do any great harm to the durability or the legitimacy of the Cold War securitization. This, of course, is bad for my argument because it looks as if Iraq might fall into the same category of an, an extremely unpopular particularist securitization, which doesn't throw any useful or supportive light on, on the larger macro securitization. But it seems to me that um, in this sense, the parallel is probably a false one. And this is something we might uh, take up in discussion. Because it seems to me that Iraq has now become so central to uh, the war on terrorism and the linkage particularly the linkage made by the U.S. government is so strong um, that it's a different kind of thing from, uh, from the effect of Vietnam on the Cold War. Vietnam was always marginal to the Cold War. It wasn't a central front uh, issue. Iraq is being posed as being central um, to the war on terror. And again, um, I refer to the, the recent um, consensus document by the U.S. intelligence services, you know, which basically says the war in Iraq is doing terrible things in relation to the war on terror. It's making the war on terror worse. Um, so it seems to me that, that uh, the disaster in Iraq um, might well have much more of an undermining effect on, on the legitimacy of the war on terror uh, than Vietnam had on the Cold War. And you can see some of this unfolding, um, interestingly, in the ever more shaky relationship of Turkey with the United States uh, and the Western Alliance in, in general, because Turkey is much affected by uh, the war in, in Iraq. So it seems to me then there's a, there are a number of quite powerful reasons for, um, generally, for 
opposition to this particular securitization and that these are likely to be corrosive of it um, in the longer run. So that's point four. Point five um, is, and this is the last of the, of the five points I, I want to review, is that if you're looking at this business of macro securitizations and what the kind of dominant framing for international security is going to be, then you have to look at the possibility of competing securitizations. And here I think there are, there are two possibilities. Um, the, the more interesting, perhaps the more interesting and obvious one um, is, uh, because it's America focused, uh, is the rise of China as a so-called peer competitor to the United States. There is uh, in Washington and has been for a long time um, a, uh, a cottage industry devoted to the securitization of China. So there is a continuous drumbeat um, in U.S. political discourse um, about that China is the long-term problem right? and that this would go back um, to a much more Cold War-like framing of international politics rather than you know, the great world superpower being staged off against um, a transnational non-state actor. The possible uh, rise of China, or the likely rise of China, um, seems to offer the possibility of, of a peer competitor. And it's clear uh, that there's a fairly big and quite active constituency in the United States for this particular securitization. And as China rises, um, this uh, is going to get stronger, it seems to me. The American, uh, present American administration is, is committed in its national security doctrine to not allowing the rise of a peer competitor. Very explicit about that. And therefore, uh, the rise of China, uh, to the extent that uh, China continues on its present trajectory, whether it has ups or downs or not is, is another question, but it seems likely to continue on this, uh, uh, on this trajectory. This, it seems to me, is going to produce attention within the United States about what its dominant security interest should be. Uh, it can't have, in my view, both the securitization of China as its peer competitor and the securitization of the global war on terror because China is on board with the global war on terror and there's no way these two securitizations can be rolled together or so it seems to me and therefore they're going to compete with each other and given that uh, at the top of politics the one thing that is always in short supply is attention span only one macro securitization can actually achieve durable dominance so the rise of China is a, it's already there you can see it uh, building up in the US been there for a long time um, the trend line on that tends to suggest that in the not too distant future that's going to be more and more competitive with the war on terror for the attention of American governments. What's interesting about this is that um, the United States has been a particularly successful generator of macro securitizations. I mean the Cold War really was a good one. Um, whether you liked it or not or believed it or not it lasted a long time and it organized the world for um, a long time in a very deep uh, and durable way. If the United States begins to securitize China and if the Chinese are clever enough to play their rise without seeming to threaten anybody else, and that's a big if, but it's not an impossible one, then it's entirely possible that the American securitization of China will be something that interests only Americans. 
it won't be something that can be sold by the U.S. to the rest of the world. Why should Europe get particularly concerned about the rise of China? Or why should India uh, or, other, or Russia or other powers get particularly concerned about the rise of China if they see that rise as being basically benign? There's a lot of talk um, in many capitals uh, about a preference for a multipolar world. And to the extent that uh, American unipolar power and American unilateralism are the object of complaint, uh, the rise of China, if the Chinese play their hand carefully enough, might well be uh, welcomed in some quarters um, or treated as of no particular concern in others. And that might mean an interesting shift where American foreign policy moves towards more parochial, self-interested um, securitizations rather than the macro securitizations like the Cold War, um, uh, which the U.S. has been quite successful at uh, during uh, the last decades. So, um, to sum up, it seems to me that a good case can be made that an awful lot has to go right in order for the war on terrorism as a macro securitization to be sustainable and that quite a number of things could easily go wrong which would undermine the securitization and make it um, relatively short-lived and not durable. It is possible that sitting here in 20 years' time we might still be talking about the war on terrorism, particularly so um, if uh, there is an escalation in terrorist activity. But it seems barring that, um, this is a securitization that is not going to endure. It is not going to be um, like the Cold War securitization. It leaves me with one um, last point, which is a kind of aside to the main line of argument. Um, but since I have been critical about the main policies against the war on terrorism, homeland security, um, the war itself, uh, and uh, the project of, of equalization, it, it does rather beg the question of, well, what the hell are we supposed to do? How do we respond to this? What is the right kind of uh, response for Western society? And I'm not sure what the answer to that is, but part of securitization theory um, is that this process of uh, building up uh, uh, and, and embedding threats uh, in, a, in a society works in both directions. You can have securitization and you can have desecuritization. Um, we've all seen, well, the older of us in this room have seen um, a heroically grand desecuritization with the, with the ending of the Cold War. Would it be possible, I ask myself, for Western societies to deal with terrorism by treating it as a nuisance? If we look at the number of people who are killed and, uh, and injured in terrorist attacks, um, it's significant, but it's not huge. Uh, if you compare, for example, the number of people who die in traffic accidents, 50,000 people a year die in Europe and another 50,000 in North America in traffic accidents every year. This is not thought of as a problem. I mean, it's a technical problem. We try to improve our roadways and put speed bumps and other inconveniences in people's ways. But we don't securitize traffic accidents, even though they kill huge numbers of people and uh, injure even more. This would tend to suggest that there is at least a possibility of treating 
the, uh, the activities of terrorists, particularly if they remain as they are now or, or, or at a lower level, treating them as a cost of open and democratic societies. If you want to live this way, then there's a certain amount of inconvenience. Not that you shouldn't do anything about it, but it should be tre treated um, largely as a, a, a problem of criminality, um, treated mainly at a police and uh, intelligence level rather than treated as a war. The interesting question is whether this is in fact doable. Are Western democracies mature enough to actually treat this kind of threat in that way, to say we'll take this in our stride um, because if we don't, the countermeasures we have to take undermine the values that we seek to defend and we don't wish to surrender the fight, as it were, by the back door in this way? Or is it always um, that politicians who wish to play to people's fears and to trump up, as it were, the threat uh, from terrorism will be able to seize the political high ground and accuse um, others who might want a more uh, moderate policy uh, of being irresponsible and not looking after the national interest. I'm not sure about this. The only thought, uh, and I'll leave you with this, uh, with this thought, is that despite the, uh, the rhetoric uh, of Kagan and others that uh, you know, uh, Europe is, is a function of its weakness, its role in the world is a function of weakness, whereas uh, the American role in the world is a function of its power. It does seem to me that Europe might actually be on stronger ground here uh, than the United States. Uh, American politics has proved particularly vulnerable to this kind of fear-mongering. Obviously, 9-11 helped a lot, and the Americans took a very big blow with this. Um, Europeans are perhaps a bit more used to uh, dealing with terrorism uh, and can cope in some sense without necessarily getting their societies um, all mobilized for war. It seems to me that Europe might have some political advantages um, in taking this more low-key approach to terrorism. But these are just uh, uh, concluding thoughts and I'm certainly open to discuss them um, in the Q&A. Uh, okay, I'll just give a couple of seconds, yeah. Okay. It'll be very quickly. Okay, we've got about tw 20 minutes or thereabouts for, for Q&A. Um, I want or two of you leave. Okay. Okay, right. Good, good, okay. That's it. Nobody else can leave. Bar close the door. <laughs> it's no good being a liberal trying to uh, chair these meetings. Okay, right, that'll do it. Right. Nobody ever accused you of being a liberal? Nobody's ever accused me of being a liberal, yeah, that's for sure. <laughs> accused me of many other things. Okay, I think we'll begin now. Yeah, okay, let's take the... Uh, we'll take a couple of rounds of questions and see... See where we go from there. Are, are, are you standing up for a purpose? Uh, did you, oh, sorry, I thought you were going to ask a question. Sorry, it's all right. <laughs> okay, let's, let's begin. I got, I, I'll start at the top of the balcony because I've always been accused of 
being a balconist. <laughs> yeah, there's a gentleman there and a gentleman there. It's all right, I can see. Yeah, take it over to this chap over here and then over here. I'll take three from the top then. Okay, and the, the guy there with the... It looks like a Barcelona football shirt, but I'm not sure. Hello. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> okay, please, yeah. yeah. Hello. Take, take um, three. I'm an American student studying here at the LSE. Welcome. Um, given the uh, role that the uh, the success for, for the military-industrial complex during the Cold War, I was wondering, specifically the American military-industrial complex, what role do you see this playing in the war on terrorism, and if anything, perhaps perpetuating and strengthening the securitization of the war on terror? Okay. Good old military-industrial complex. Excellent. Need, needed that one to start it up. Yeah, guy there. Yeah, please. And then you, it's okay. I haven't forgotten you. You, know, yeah, you my, sit down to it. My yeah. question is about um, the issue raised as to the sustainability of the war on terror. Isn't it a question of how long the United States is willing to engage in the war on terror, especially when you look at the amount of organizations, groups, that are on the State Department's list of terrorist organizations, as well as the way it's been referring to various states as state terror or um, states that promote terrorism, isn't it a question of just as long as they're willing to to carry along the war the war on terror? Um, I mean, the Cold War finished when the Soviet Union fell apart, but the terrorist the war on terror seems it seems as if it will go along, uh, go as long as the United States and I mean, FARC in Colombia is a terrorist group, Hamas is a terrorist group, uh, Hezbollah is a terrorist group. As long as these organizations continue to exist, won't that uh, just continue to war on terror? That's, that's my question. Right, that's great. And there's got the back there, yeah. Hello, Professor. I'm a Chinese student studying the Department of Government. And uh, cold, um, in the Cold War, that at least Americans know who the enemy is. But uh, in the war on terrorism, the terrorist is not a, a country. There are maybe individuals or a group of people like just like the terror plot in the UK several months ago. They are well-educated people. So my question is, how Americans can win the war without knowing clearly who and where the, where, where the enemy are? Yeah. Okay, take one more, yeah. We need a decent country. Yeah, please, yeah. Or an, in, an, in, an indecent country. Norway is a decent country. Um, Make it quick. Yeah, uh, I just want to ask, how does the, since the Soviet Union was basically a very strong state, uh, how does the uh, uh, the effect that the Middle East is more a grouping of very weak states affect the war on terror? Because that's basically their main problem, that they're all at war with each other. Right, I think we'll, we'll start with that and then I'll, I'll move around. Barry, why don't you kick off on some of those? Military, industrial, complex, etc. Okay. Well, I believe that. Right. Uh, okay. I haven't talked about the military-industrial conflict for years. Um, shall, I, shall, I, shall I answer this question? It's a real Cold War nostalgia question. Oh, um, wonderful. Terrific. Yeah. Uh, I think, I think the, the, the thing to say about, about this, really, is that if you look at, at U.S. military expenditure, which, uh, you know, the, the, the hardware budgets and all of that, which is what the military-industrial complex is interested in, um, relatively little of the enormous U.S. military budget is actually being spent on the war on terror. Uh, most of it is being spent on aircraft carrier groups and fancy bombers and, and, and all this sort of stuff. In other words, the vast bulk of the military budget is actually still being spent on the assumption that the problem is going to be a peer competitor state of some sort. So my guess here is that the, um, 
the military-industrial complex, such as it is, not going to be terribly interested um, in the war on terror because the war on terror doesn't use up an awful lot of, uh, of the sort of things that they produce. Certain sectors of it will, be very, uh, will do very well out of this. Um, the people who make remotely piloted vehicles and precision-guided munitions and such like uh, will do particularly well. Um, the makers of aircraft carriers and uh, missile submarines and the, the kind of the heavy-duty stuff of, of interstate nuclear relations are not going to do too well out of this, and they must all be desperate for the rise of China um, to, uh, to kick in, because that, then they can get back to a game that they, that they understand how to play. Um, in terms of the second question, in terms of the, um, the sustainability um, of the U.S., Willingness. You, okay, you say that there's a long list of, of terrorist groups, and that's true. But if you look about, uh, at how those lists are made, I mean, they're made in backroom negotiations with all sorts of people. You know, will you put these guys on your on your list in relation you know, in return for my doing my doing something for you? There's a very political process about who and what gets defined as a terrorist group, um, and there's an awful lot of room for argument about what should and shouldn't be. Um, defined as, uh, as a terrorist group, particularly in relation to the war on terror. Do you, uh, do you want to bundle in um, every little local group with its own particular little local grievance, or are you only interested in, in terrorist groups who, uh, like al-Qaeda, that have some kind of bigger agenda uh, and, and which operate much more uh, internationally? Um, so you say you know, there's a long list of terrorist groups and it won't end until they're all defeated. Um, well, that's one possible outcome, although uh, it seems to me that terrorism by its very nature cannot be defeated uh, totally by open societies as long as there are alienated people uh, out there um, or uh, people driven by uh, particular sorts of ideologies. I mean, terrorism has been around for a long time. Uh, it's, it's only now that it's at the top of the agenda that it's treated in this, in this way. But, you know, there's a literature on terrorism and international relations going way back into the, into the 50s and 60s and even, even earlier. So it's been a continuous problem. It's not so much, therefore, a question um, about how long the U.S. is willing to stay in the game. It's a question of, of whether this is going to be defined as the most important thing on the international agenda around which all of world politics has to, be, has to orbit and has to be organized. Um, and it seems to me that the answer to that, for the reasons I've given, is probably not. Um, the activities uh, concerning opposition to terrorism will continue to go on uh, depending on who and what is, is defined as a terrorist group and how active they are. And I don't think it's going to stay at the top of the world political agenda in the way that the war on terrorism is trying to construct it. Um, I've kind of answered the third question, how can the U.S. win the war uh, when there's no, uh, there's no target? It's, it's perfectly clear that this, uh, this is a, an issue of some concern uh, to those in Washington because they'd much prefer to have a state as a target. So the, the U.S. military, as most other militaries, are set up to deal with things that come in territorial packages. And it's very difficult to deal with opponents that don't have territorial packages. That's what your secret services uh, and all uh, that sort of branch of government um, are, are for. So one of, the, one of the curiosities about the war on terrorism is the, is the way in which 
the U.S. government has tried very hard to link it to particular states, to say you know, these states are responsible sponsors of terrorism, etc., etc., because that makes uh, life relatively easy. It doesn't seem to me that uh, uh, the war on terrorism can be won in, in any definitive uh, way. It can be made more or less important than it now is, and it seems to me that's the key question. Is it going to have this dominant importance, um, or is it going to be treated more as a, as a background issue? Okay, uh, can I come take some from us? There's a gentleman here and a gentleman there. Okay, yeah. If you get the mic over here, what, one over here. Who's the other guy over here? Yeah, yeah, the stripes, yeah. Okay, please, thanks. And I come okay, take yeah. two or three, yeah. Um, my question is on, on the thing of the nuisance uh, and traffic. Know, the, the car accidents and um, the, the last yeah, I thing think you said. speak up so people do. Yeah, right? Sorry, um, my question is on the nuisance thing, the element of uh, can we deal with terrorism as a nuisance instead of because, and you compare with the car accidents and crime criminality. The, this is uh, probably we are forgetting the element of uh, the element of resistance related with terrorism. I think there is an element of resistance against the system, and uh, as car accidents is part of the system and is. The system accepts it because it's part of, of the cost of the system of we can analyze like that. The case of terrorism, it's, there is a certain element of being a resistance against the system. I think that's, uh, then uh, by having, having taken into account that difference, the reaction of the system is going to be different. Okay, great. That's good. Yeah, please, yeah. Uh, assuming that the United States is unable to sustain this uh, macro securitization, and has to kind of back away from the war on terrorism as such. What do you think that will do to their ability to lead the world as, I don't know, the hegemon, if you will, or the organizing state around which um, most policies emanate? Okay, a second. Somebody had their hand up there? Yeah. And we'll take the third one, then the fourth one at the front. Yeah, this guy in front of you. Please. Yeah, somebody, no, somebody there, sorry. Don't take your mic away now, please. Thanks, yeah. 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 One and then two, yeah, please. If it comes to a choice between a securitization against China and a securitization against terror, because terror can be seen as having a more sort of open uh, sphere to, to maybe um, like go after other objectives, such as it's been suggested that oil was an issue in Iraq, and you can use terror to go into anywhere where you've got an objective, do you think that could maybe become more popular than securitization against China because it can be used to achieve lots of different things the global, the global consequences yeah right you can stop writing now and ask the question <laughs> um, what is your evaluation of the actions and decisions taken by the UN and uh, the NGOs regarding the global war on terror so far um, how does it compare to what they did during the Cold War and uh, what do you believe the role should be Right, that sounds like a, a book. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we'll take, we'll take those uh, 27 questions. Right, Barry, you want to go? Okay. Um, right, the one about, um, about traffic accidents and the element of resistance. Mm. Um, that's a good question, and I mean, it's true that there is a, there is a, a political difference, but it, it seems to me this is, a, to a considerable extent, a matter of how you care to frame these things. I mean, criminals are an element of resistance um, in society as well. They 
resist the application of, of the body of the rule of law. Um, but they're treated as a structural problem. And it seems to me that this requires a, kind of, requires a bit of detachment in the sense um, you need to rise above the game that the terrorists offer you. It seems to me one of the, the bigger mistakes that Bush has made is playing bin Laden's game. I mean, bin Laden has been so fortunate in his choice of opponents, it's just not true. He, uh, laughing all the way to the bank. So, so Bush, Bush has given him a war. You know, what, what more could he ask for? That's exactly what he wanted. If he'd been given contempt and treated as a nuisance, that would have been a serious blow. And it seems to me, or at least I see no reason uh, why these things can't be viewed as structural problems of, of open societies, that there's always going to be um, a fringe, a difficult alienated fringe of some sort, whatever its, its motivations, that is going to have to be dealt with by society as a whole. And if you want to live in an open society, uh, you pay that kind of cost. Now, so far, the costs on offer, although they could get a lot worse, and that is troublesome for my thesis, but if they stay the same, if they can be kept at the present sort of level, you know, these things d d don't seem to me to, to uh, be beyond being treated as structural problems. I mean, even something like 9-11, which was big, you know, um, is perfectly comparable to other sorts of accidents, the sinking of the Titanic. Proportionately, given the population of the world at the time, 1,500 people died all in one go as a result of an accident, but it doesn't stop people from sailing across the ocean in, in passenger ships. So it, it does require a certain turn of mind um, as to not to play the game that the terrorists want to make you play and to treat them as a structural problem of this type of society. If you can't do that, um, if when the terrorists hit you in the face, you respond as, as Bush has done, then you're going to play their game and you can't do this. But then you have the problem of what kind of strategy can you use that isn't going to undermine the values you want to defend. Um, the question about American leadership um, post-war on terror. Yeah. Hmm. Big one. Um, several books there, Nick. Um, there are all kinds of scenarios, so I can't give you a, a single simple answer to this. Um, I mean, I've given one answer in the sense that if the rise of China thing works out well, then um, it seems to me that, that unless the Chinese make a real hash of their rise and manage to scare the daylights out of all of their neighbors and the rest of the world, um, then the Americans are going to be more on their own than they have been for a long time in their securitizations because nobody cares whether China challenges American unipolarity because hardly anybody likes American unipolarity anyway. So, you know, bring on the Chinese, anything to get rid of unipolarity. Um, you first heard it here. Um, you first heard it here. Um, <laughs> Chatham House <I> rule. <laughs> isolation, isolationism, I think, is not... Um, I mean, it's there in the American tradition, but um, it, it seems to me America cannot go down that, that route, although I can envisage a kind of multipolar, regionalized world um, in which there's some retreat from trying to run a world system uh, because it proves to be too complicated 
uh, and a retreat into running more regionalized um, systems, in which case the U.S. gets uh, the Western Hemisphere. Um, that's a possibility. Um, there's the Eikenberry scenario, which I have some sympathy with. Eikenberry is Mr. Liberalism in the U.S. For, uh, from, uh, from these points of view, and he's of the view, and I think there's a lot of force in his view, um, that America has to uh, relearn the wisdom of the position it adopted from uh, the end of the Second World War uh, up through into the 90s of managing a multilateral system, binding its own power, creating legitimacy, etc., etc., etc. And it, uh, his argument is that uh, going the unilateral route will be so expensive and so disastrous that it will eventually come back to this wisdom. Um, how long will this take is an interesting question. Is it that we're just looking at a particular uh, extreme administration in the U.S. and therefore from 2009 onward we're back to something like the game we were in before? Or has 9-11 had such a deep impact on the U.S. that it has shifted the whole American body politic rightward uh, in some sense and therefore changed the nature of American politics in a more durable sense? In, in, in that case, we may be looking um, at... at uh, at a different sort of scenario and the learning process may take longer. So there are many possibilities and no obvious way of selecting which one is, is more likely. Um, the question about um, the war on terrorism is a useful excuse for intervention. Um, well, yes, that's one of its very handy things. Um, if you've got something like this going, you can securitize anything that seems to be uh, related to it and uh, use a general climate of, of interventionism to, uh, to pursue other goals. The problem with that is that it's exactly what's making the war on terrorism unpopular. Um, and therefore, whilst this might seem to have a certain instrumental uh, utility uh, for uh, the US and some other governments at the moment, in the long run, I don't think it's sustainable uh, because it will encourage far too much opposition. It questions uh, some of the more sacrosanct principles of international society like non-intervention and sovereignty and, uh, and things like that, which, okay, you may say these are always uh, observed more in the breach than anything else, but they do matter. Um, and, a, and a sort of explicit in-your-face declaration of a right to intervene is a fundamental reorganization of the way in which international society works. And that will, um, in the absence of a plausible widespread acceptance that terrorism is indeed the big problem uh, of our time. Um, this is not going to, it's not going to be sustainable. And the last question was about the UN. Um, what do I think of the actions of the UN in relation to um, the war on terror and the Cold War? Um, not much really, but that's not, um, that's not insulting. I mean, um, it's not the business of the UN to manage the high politics of the world. Um, it doesn't have that kind of power. Um, it is mainly a creature of the state's uh, members. Uh, it doesn't have, a, other than being a bully pulpit for the Secretary General, it doesn't have uh, any structure or institutional power or any armed forces of its own. Um, one wouldn't expect it to be doing much in relation uh, to these big questions, and indeed it doesn't. Okay, I'm going to take one couple more questions. One, there's a gentleman at the back who's had his hand up for a long time. And there's a gentleman in the middle here who's had his up. I must find some... 
I'm just going to, if we could be quick, quick with the yeah. questions. And um, the CIA. In this will be the last round anyway, so you can sit down. <laughs> yeah, please. Uh, actually, oh. I, I didn't understand the, the end of the question, which is like. Uh, You're going to have to speak up, sorry. Yeah, I didn't understand the end of the question, which is like the new, world, the new Cold War, as there has been. Cold War a long time, and if there is a new Cold War, what, what do you mean by exactly the new Cold War? As we have been, uh, since my birth, like 1980 till today, I'm just watching Cold War, Cold War, especially regarding Afghanistan and uh, the U.S., where they brought people from all over the world to defend Russians to come to the warm sea in Afghanistan, where uh, after when Russians were defeated, they... <laughs> Those people who, by, who were funded by Americans and European states, uh, they took their name that they are terrorists. But I think if somebody is going to attack someone's home, and those people who are defending their home, if you call them uh, terrorists, then what would be self-defense, I mean, which is a basic human uh, fundamental rights? I mean, as far as Amnesty International and other organizations can take the issue. So my question uh, is, what's a, what's a new Cold War? I right. mean, as far as if there has been once again the rise of right. Taliban once again. Okay, good. Parliamentarian question. <laughs> yeah, please. And, and somebody in the corner there, please, over there, yeah. Yeah. Just, yeah, person over here. Hi. Hi, yeah, go. The, the, the CIA in uh, 2003 did a, uh, a study alongside its World Factbook, and it was a sensitivity analysis, and they, suggest, they suggested that there was a, a large uh, chance that by the year 2020 there would be a global Islamic state. Um, I wanted to know if you, would, you, you also entertain that. Thanks. Right. Okay, there's one in the corner. There's somebody up there. Somebody up. No, sorry, I'm not. There's a, late, a woman in the middle there. Can I go? Yeah, you can do it, yeah. <laughs> Somebody, yeah right. Please do, yeah. My question relates to the sustainability. Isn't there something about of a um, self-fulfilling prophecy about the war on terrorism as the war itself creates actually terrorism? Thank you. Okay, and I, I'll take this as the last one because the time running out. Yeah, please, yeah. Um, you had mentioned earlier that there, the matter would be less ambiguous had it been a war against a single entity. Um, and it's no secret that uh, there's a discussion over an impending attack against Ira uh, Iran. How do you think that would affect the sustainability of the war on terrorism? And would you foresee another failure, as can be seen in Iran? Okay, we'll take that. And let Barry, Barry, your final words, please. Okay. Um, I'm going to deal with some of these uh, briefly. I'm afraid the, um, the, the first question about uh, what's the new Cold War, well, you have a different definition from me as to what, um, uh, what the Cold War was. In my view, the Cold War ended around 1989-90, uh, um, um, and then we didn't have any kind of over, overarching framing securitization. Um, the war on terrorism started after September the 11th and has been offered as a new kind of uh, security framing. Um, I don't disagree that there have been continuities in various places around the world uh, that connect these things, but as uh, if you've understood anything I've said at all about macro securitization, there's a gigantic break between the end of the Cold War defined as the end of bipolarity um, and then what uh, started up um, uh, after 9-11. So we just disagree about the words and therefore there's no point in the discussion. Um, do I suspect a global Islamic State by 2020? Definitely not. Um, 
I mean, I just, I just cannot imagine what would have to happen. Uh, my, my, my friend Ole Weber has a, a very good line on this. He says, in principle, anything is possible. It only depends how many things have to change to make it so. And an awful lot of things would have to change. Um, is the war on terrorism a self-fulfilling prophecy? Um, yes, I mean, the, the, in some ways it is. And this is a, a problem that recurs again and again in the study of international relations. That realism is a self-fulfilling prophecy as well. Um, so it, it goes back to what I've been saying about uh, the impact of belief in terms of, of securitizations. If you believe that something is a threat and behave as if it is, um, then you're more likely uh, uh, to create that behavior. Um, so in that sense, there are some parallels between um, realism and, and the war on terror. Um, attack on Iran, um, I, think, I think this is a, a bluff. Uh, this <laughs> uh, the war, war in Iraq has been disaster enough. Um, if you uh, pay any attention at all to what the U.S. Army is telling its government, um, they are saying, enough. I mean, e <laughs> even John Mearsheimer, who is not shy about uh, the use of American military power um, and uh, not, in a sense, uh, a liberal or concerned about uh, the niceties of international relations, his principal concern at the moment, as he expressed here, when was it, last year or something, mm. um, was that this war is destroying the U.S. military. <coughs> they cannot, the uh, U.S. military of its present size cannot sustain uh, the military commitments it now has. And if you look at the problems of the reserves falling to pieces, of nobody wanting to join the army, and can you blame them, um, of tours being extended and extended and extended so that once you're in bloody Iraq, you can never get out, um, it's a nightmare for the military. They will not let the government fight um, uh, another war. So only if the Air Force manages to persuade people that they can win the war from the air an argument that has been mooted many times and has always failed. Um, will that happen? I don't think it will happen. It's part of the um, it's part of the bluff. Okay, thanks very much, Barry. Well, you've heard it all here tonight. Bring on China, no war on Iran, and and, um, <laughs> and no. Quite, quite spontaneous, that's great. Now, just uh, from Buzan to Bin Laden to Thomas Jefferson, um, our, next, uh, our next public lecture organized by the Cold War, Cold War Study Center in association with the Guild of Lehrman will be on Thomas Jefferson and the origins of American parties, uh, as you want to say, now for something different. Um, secondly, just to announce the fact that the, this lecture, uh, which I've had some sort of hand in in terms of fra not framing it, but at least encouraging Barry, that's, that's great, but there will be a publication uh, coming out of this, well, it's, it's already there. It, it'll be published in International Affairs, uh, the Journal of Chatham House of the Royal Institute of International Affairs, and that'll be coming out in November. So if you look forward to, to, to that publication, thank you for coming here tonight. We had over 500 people, a great start to this lecture series. Many thanks to Barry Bazan for, for starting us off. Thanks again, Barry. Thank